Well, greetings and welcome to another episode of The Deal Flow Show. I'm J.P. Maroney, your host, along with Paul Nicolini, my co-host here at Harbor City Capital and The Deal Flow Show team. And uh, we've got David Wild with us, David Wild IV from Wild Capital. And I uh, want to talk to you about a lot of things, but I know that you've got a massive depth. In fact, about as deep as you can go in the Jobs Act and the whole idea behind uh, the Reg A's and a lot of the things that we know today with crowdfunding. So I want to talk about that today. But let's go back just a little bit and let our listeners and viewers know how you got started in the capital markets. What was the beginning for you? Maybe talk a little bit about some of those early deals that you worked on. Sure. Well, I, you know, I was a, a molecular geneticist and was doing graduate work and I saw Genentech go public and I put together the, the notion that you know, capital could transform the world, right? We, I saw that as sort of the, the dawn of a complete revolution in how, we, uh, how medicine uh, was going to be um, uh, uh, had and, um, and uh, how, deserve, how, how disease could be cured. And so, you know, I looked at, at capital markets as really being, you know, where the gods work of investment banking and, you know, and innovation was done, where jobs were created, where solutions were found. And so I became a kind of a real student of markets. I, I wanted to be a venture capitalist, but, you know, at the time, I, the, it was a bad economy and nobody was hiring anybody. And so, you know, beggars couldn't be choosers. And I found a guy that uh, wanted me to be an analyst in an equity syndicate department, taking apart other people's deals. And so I flew all the way out to Colorado to take that job. I mean, his view was, you know, he can do that. He can do this work in securities if he can do the molecular geneticist stuff, genetics piece. So I, um, I took the job and I was really good at at uh, you know, at, at identifying sort of hidden gems in in, uh, in, in deals, and uh, and so good, in fact, that I was uh, telling the guys at Merrill Lynch more about their deals than they knew, and so uh, their their heads of ECM was a guy named Peter. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember Peter's last name right now, and then uh, and then Ted Coburn, you know, got on planes and flew out and tried to recruit me over to Merrill Lynch, back to New York from Colorado. And, uh, and then one day, one of them moved, Ted moved over to, uh, to uh, Prudential Securities and, uh, and brought me back to New York to work on a, on a deal as a co-manager and then cornered me in a room and quadrupled my compensation and made, it, made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So I, I came back, started working for Prudential Securities. I, I ran, uh, you know, I was, I was working on the equity syndicate desk, putting in new technologies, created the first algorithmic allocation programs for new issue equities and did a range of things. And uh, very quickly, when he left, became the head of global equity capital markets for Prudential Securities. And, uh, and you know, look, I had a great time. I priced over a thousand public equity offerings, did 500 IPOs at the time. I, I, I worked with, uh, I raised money with Celgene, which just got sold to Bristol Myers Quick for $74 billion back when it was a $100 million company. And, you know, and then, you know, had the, had the honor and the pleasure to, you know, create uh, or work in financing drugs that have actually saved the lives of friends of mine. So, um, you know, so it's been, you know, it's, so I, I've never lost the kind of the enthusiasm for, you know, doing what we need to do to fix our markets, to make them work for the American people and for the next generation. And so that's kind of where my passion was. That's what Wield & Co. was all about. 
you know, we were, we're creating an alternative investment banking model, which is, uh, and, and we, we want to scale the hell out of it. We want to take it from, we're up to 90 professionals. We started in August of 2016. We've got about 80 active engagements right now. We want to take it to a, we're going to, a, a thousand professionals over the next five years and then take it public and fill in that gap that's been voided by the collapse of the middle market firms when they collapse trading spreads and commissions uh, by changing market structure. And at the meantime, you know, we're out there trying to uh, fix capital markets so that they, we get more and more and more of the 30 some odd trillion dollars in public markets to tilt downward into the hands of entrepreneurs to set off a growth revolution. That's, you know, that's what, that's what, you know, it's not, uh, you know, it's not about just making money. It's about, it's about really, if you're, if you're passionate and you put on your red, white, and blue epaulets and you care about this country, it's about, you know, creating the toolkits that are required so that capitalism can really do its thing. There's nothing more powerful than people, you know, working out of enlightened self-interest, but doing it in a way where, where when they make money, they're actually achieving something which is beneficial for society. It's about incentives and disincentives, checks and balances. And if you get them right, there's nothing that will stop us. If you get it wrong, you're going to get some horrible unintended consequences. And so I think that for those of us that have been around for a certain period of time, it's, it's kind of up to us to, you know, make sure that we, we put the, the guardrails in the right places and, uh, and, and, and leave, uh, leave an infrastructure for the next generation. So I, I think that what we're trying to create with Wield Co is, you know, it's made of, it's a, it's a network of independent uh, contract investment bankers up to 90, 17, 18 states in the District of Columbia. We've got our first couple overseas. I mean, we want to create a, a, a machine uh, to go and fill this void in the middle market, which is thirsting for investment banking services and get people to effectively do those things that are going to, create great solutions to major problems and, and, and create jobs and restore upward mobility and all the things that I think that most of us can agree on. I have a lot of questions, but one yes. of them, I, I, you covered a lot that sparked some thoughts. When you um, talk about this middle market serving it and, and building a, a massive bandwidth, amount of bandwidth, are you talking about with traditional services or is there a new model? Is there a, a new way of looking at how you deliver these services to the market? A little of both. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of traditional investment banking models, but effectively virtualized in the cloud and in an independent contractor model. So, you know, I ran a top 10 investment bank years ago. I was in charge of strategy banking for banking research, sales and trading. So got really deep in the weeds of what, what works and doesn't work. And you ultimately need, if you're going to get more, better and better, you need specialization. You need critical mass and certain verticals. And so, you know, uh, through an independent contractor model, we can attract more human capital because we need less capital to pull people together to get to that critical mass. And ultimately in the cloud, we'll start to virtualize groups of common interests, which may be industry verticals, product verticals like M&A, uh, uh, private placements uh, of, of debt, of equity, of, uh, of, of, of asset managers, uh, and then ultimately sales groups. So we're, you know, at 90 professionals, we're just in the early throes of creating some interesting verticals. We've got a, a really good emerging blockchain group. 
Uh, we do some things in uh, life sciences and medical devices. We've got a great insurance investment banking group. We're starting to get some folks that are really good at doing secondaries. Uh, so, for example, in a private secondary. So, for instance, we've got a, uh, an ongoing engagement for a B2C uh, a company that's growing like a weed during COVID. And um, we have... Uh, um, you know, more and more of us, we just attracted a guy that, uh, that, that was running a secondary fund in Silicon Valley as a PhD and uh, out of Cornell. So, so really incredible talent that's, that's, that's starting to flock to us. You had a question. I did. Yeah, a couple, but I'll start with one. Uh, you are often referred to as the father of the Jobs Act. Can you give us an idea of what your role was with that and, and, uh, and how you got that passed? Yeah, sure. I, I wrote, um, a series of papers, uh, the titles of which were things like a wake-up call for America that, um, that uh, looked at the drop-off in the small IPO. And uh, most people think it was decimalization or Sarbanes-Oxley. In point of fact, it happened before that during the height of the dot-com bubble. And we were able to, admit to, to demonstrate that the cause of the drop-off was the, the, the shift from telephone-quoted markets to electronic markets, the collapse in trading spreads and commissions that occurred with self-directed brokers. So brokers couldn't then, in the aftermarket market stocks, it's really an aftermarket problem. And so, you know, we, we had a very, very uh, dramatic chart uh, that was passed around Congress that showed that we had 80% of all initial public offerings were small, small initial public offerings, and in, in one year it dropped to 20% and never recovered. That was a market structure shift. It wasn't, for a long time, people would make fun of me saying, you know, Will doesn't know what he's talking about. It's, uh, it's a market cycle issue. And I said, no, 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 you can just put it up on your screen, watch it. These small IPOs are not coming back because you, you, you drop the bottom out of it and the market structure is not going to support them. And so, in the meantime, we just said, we wrote another paper, uh, well, the, the, the paper called The Wake-Up Call for America made, made recommendations for private and public markets, and they took some of those recommendations. The repeal of the prohibition against general solicitation, which became a 506C private placement, that came directly from that paper. Uh, I actually testified and probably wrote about half of the provisions into Regulation A+. Uh, it, back all the way when it was HR 1070 before it got rolled into the Jobs Act. So, you know, even the former chairman of the House Financial Services Committee referred you know, to me as the father of the Jobs Act because our written work actually uh, told Washington that we had a problem. Uh, but so I like to say that it's not exactly the act that I would have written if they'd given me the pen because, you know, we're, our, our process is a collaborative, uh, compromised infused process and there's a lot of horse trading that goes back and forth and so what comes out the other end is uh is uh is, is political compromise and you kind of have to stick at it and keep moving it and you know sort of refining it there was a second act that was i would say kind of had a technical corrections part called the the, the fast act and we actually got really close to another much larger package um, that was called the Jobs and I think Investor Protection Act, and it was in 2018. It actually passed the House 406 to 4, 
and it was supposed to get tacked onto the Senate appropriations bill and then passed into law and Trump was supportive of it. But then they went to war over the, uh, over the wall, shut down the budget over the wall. It pushed it into the next Congress, which has the, has the effect of, of, uh, of uh, mooting the legis all legislation, right? So you have to take it back up again. Then we went into the presidential uh, silly season when you know nothing except for basic budget stuff gets done and so you know as i as i as i you know as i like to say you know getting legislation passed is like being a you know being a midget on a, in an nba game if you hang out in the paint long enough eventually you're going to get a rebound even if you're uh four feet tall so so we're uh we're, we're hoping to hang out in the paint long enough with Congress because what we what we offer is heavily bipartisan. I mean, we, I literally we have in fact a little bit of trivia is that the the gentleman who is running the transition team for uh, for uh, President Elect Biden is uh, uh, was actually one of the first advocates for getting uh, for trying to bring back the small IPO. He did a, he actually did a speech on the floor of the US Senate to that effect. So what's the definition of a small IPO? Well then it was then it was sub fifty million dollars. I mean he in a speech he said twenty five million. He took the midpoint zero to fifty million and he said I think the closing line in his speech was if we can get the twenty five million dollar IPO to work again, we'll get America back into business. This is Senator Ted Kaufman and and uh, Senator Kaufman took over. He was he was the chief of staff for for uh, 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 Senator Biden. And when when Biden became vice president, uh, he gave uh, 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 Ted his seat. And uh, and and Ted was holding the seat warm for Bo Biden. And of course, Bo tragically passed away of a brain tumor. And so, as a consequence, you know, Ted was in there for that one term, but. You know, because he wasn't running for office, he did what was, you know, he what what he he advocated for that which he believed in, and uh, and uh, he's a Wharton graduate, uh, and so you know he when we were showing him going through the slides, I mean Ted's a very smart guy, and he picked it up just like that, and uh, and uh, you know became a great advocate for for trying to improve capital formation broadly. Most people don't know that, of course, you know. The Jobs Act was signed into law on April 5th of 2012, and it was signed into law uh, by President Obama. And I was at the, was in the Rose Garden uh, when 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 they when when it was signed into law. You talked about doing or being a part of over 500 IPOs. Historically, when you look at the deals you've done, and then the things that you see going into the markets today. What are your thoughts in terms of the valuations some of these sort of still almost feel like pipe dreams that are, are entering the markets don't have, some of them don't seem to have a lot of substance to them. You and I were talking about, uh, Paulie and I were talking about Crunchbase and seeing yeah. some of those deals come across your email and you're like, what? How'd they you do know? that? Yeah, how are, yeah. They, how are they getting those valuations? How are they even getting money? Um, is it, do you feel like the market's just, there's such a vacuum right now, so much appetite or what, what do you think's driving that? You know, the question is, there's a lot of, there's a lot of liquidity. We've kept interest rates low, um, you know, partly because of the unemployment problem, 
but this has been going on for a while. You also have a demographic you know, uh, issue, not just with the United States, it's worse in Europe, it's worse in Japan. And so you're, you know, there's, there's a fear that, uh, that if you slow down the economy, you could end up in a, uh, you know, not just in a, re in a recession, but you, you could see deflation and people are afraid of deflation, right? Because the consumptive side of the economy is a lot softer than it once was because of the, we, 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 we tilted much to uh, demographically to an older verging on retire. And remember the, the median age of the, of the baby boomers is now 63 and 60, you know, 63, 64, right? So they're on the verge of retiring. So you've got this big bolus of people that are starting to, to retire. And that means that they're, they're, you know, they're, they're living on fixed incomes. They're not spending as much money. They're downsizing. And now we've got this massive unemployment problem uh, because of COVID. So I think we're on kind of tender hooks. We're flooding the system with liquidity. You saw that the government, I think, pumped about $3 trillion of liquidity into the economy. And, um, you know, we're trying to hold it together until we can come out the other end. And, uh, and uh, so where are you going to go with the money? Well, your commercial real estate sector is troubled right now. Um, and, uh, you know, I was... Uh, uh, my 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 dad's retiring from the practice of law. We were down to 200 BC Street in Manhattan, which is a massive in the, in the World Financial Center, a massive uh, 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 office building. And I asked the securities guards when we were down cleaning his office out, "What is the, you know, how many people a day are you seeing in the building?" And he said, uh, "70." And I said, "What were you seeing? Uh, what were you seeing before COVID?" And he said 70 to 90,000 people a day went through that building. 70 to 90,000, not 70. And so, you know, so you're, you, you know, you, 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 when you start looking at WeWorks and, and, and places like that, you can go visit. There's just, you can almost hear a pin drop in these places right now in Manhattan. And, and, a, and, a, and yet the traffic in the streets, you still you have traffic jams. Why? Because nobody's taking mass transit, right? They're trying to avoid COVID. So, you know, we're starting to teach ourselves we can live in a distributed work environment, in the, particularly in the professional services space. We can work from home. That's our, that's our model, right? So we, we see, we've seen a sudden surge in interest from investment bankers because, you know, it, it's, it's already what we were doing. We had 30% uh, growth in new professionals in the first six months of this year, right? And it's all word of mouth. So, and some pretty fantastic people. I mean, we just got a referral, I think I mentioned to you, from somebody who was at Barclays in, uh, in Singapore, right? So, you know, it's, uh, I think the world is in the process of changing. I think it's changing permanently. It won't be as extreme as it is currently, but it's going to be, you know, forever changed. And you're not going to see the concentrations of older professionals. Um, and families in places like, you know, Manhattan, because they no longer need to commute, many of them, right? That's going to change the economic environment, the tax base. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many of these uh, cities are likely to be, you know, in trouble if you moved out of the city and you had an income tax, right? I mean, everybody's watching the clock. It started in March, 
right? They're going to be out of the city for six months. And I know a lot of people that are doing this at least six months because they want to avoid an income tax in, you know, from New York City. Um, so, you know, that and the loss to the spending, which was the sales tax, the revenue base, the tax revenue base is going to be really, really, really depressed. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see, I mean, in some respects, you know, uh, not to play, you know, this is not a political statement, but I think that the, the Biden administration is going to be more sensitized to the fact that these, you know, cities in some of these states are going to be in crisis. And, um, and uh, from a revenue standpoint, and hopefully help work with them to bridge to the other end, because you've got, you know, uniform uh, you know, first responders and things that uh, that are going to need to be you know paid to keep uh, uh, keep the lid on and keep people safe and so on and so forth. And so we're going to go through a period of, of restructuring, which is going to take quite a while. And uh, that's one of the reasons why, as an advocate for improving capital formation tools and getting, you know, you know there's there's uh, in round numbers there's you know call it 40 trillion dollars worth of public equity assets you know running around the equities markets and and i think 30 over 30 trillion of that is just in the fortune 500 right to show you the concentration and so if we can get you know some of that money to tip down into private markets where jobs are created you know we we will create a, a much bigger tax base we will help, you know, pay off some of this deficit that we're creating, that creating this entrepreneurship revolution, if you will, is going to be absolutely essential to our long-term success and our ability to compete against bigger, bigger countries like, you know, China over the long run. So I, I look at it as being, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, some things that we've got to get back to work. We've got to roll up our sleeves. Hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully people in the, in whichever administration it turns out to be, will be receptive to hearing ideas because I think we can make a massive difference. Uh, some of it may take uh, some tax incentives, uh, you know, to, to channel money into places that, that need it, but with a capitalist bent, sort of economic activism to kind of, to create more, more businesses, more jobs, more upward mobility, um, and, and ultimately more things of value in in uh, in areas of the country and sectors that are going to require it. When you go back and look at all the deals that you've been a part of, what are the common threads that are that you look for in believing that that's going to be a successful deal? In other words, what are those deal makers for you? You know, I I number one am uh, in a bet on the jockey, not on the horse kind of guy. I like to say I'd rather have an, an you know an an A uh, leader uh, and a and a B idea than a B leader and a and an and, a, and an A idea. Um, you know, it's uh, it's interesting because we're we're working with you know, some artificial intelligence uh, applications to the deal business right now. One of them does what they call collective intelligence. There's a whole lab set up at MIT on this. Run by. A uh, gentleman, uh, I think, named Maloney, a uh, uh, close, close cousin there, JP, and um, and uh, but what it what it what this platform does is it uses uh, uh, panels of experts to evaluate deals, and it's shown that they 
statistically consistently outperform individual, for instance, venture capitalists and deal selection, but also by, by taking qualitative input from those 25 specialists or experts, turning it into quantitative uh, in output that you can evaluate and then suggestions. So you may find out of it, for instance, a sales channel that's very productive for the company that you otherwise didn't know. And so we're going to see more and more of that going on. They're being uh, deployed as a $100 billion plus uh, 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 endowment fund out in the West Coast that's you know, partnering to, 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 uh, to further develop the application of that technology to how they run their endowment. Um, we've got uh, uh, some of the uh, you know, exchanges and others that are looking at it as ways to, from a diligence standpoint to evaluate. So there's a quiet revolution that's going on in, in, in artificial intelligence. I mean, we have, we have a, uh, a really, well, I think it's the, mo the, the, the most amazing first-time venture capital fund I've ever seen, and we work with a lot of them, that it, uh, it, it takes um, uh, it, it, it takes this artificial intelligence and uh, and um, and uh, and and evaluates all of the uh, all of the uh, uh, angel investors out there for track records and determines which subset of them are super forecasters. This is if you know Philip Tetlock's work, the professor at University of uh, Pennsylvania. And it's it and it, what you end up with is an ability to early on have a much higher probability of predicting future unicorns at an early stage. It's money ball for venture capital. If you know the, the Michael Lewis book, uh, he was the author of uh, Flash Boys and you know, very widely read on Wall Street, but that's what it is. It's money ball for venture capital. And, you know, for me, that is, I look at that and if they, if they get it partly right, it'll be a one percentile perform, you know, kind of thing in the venture capital space. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things going on. I'm interested in these technologies to apply it to the, the business of investment banking, right? And, um, and uh, to, to, to not only to, evaluate companies for the purposes of what you offer to investors, but because the output, I believe, over time will help those managers become better managers, those CEOs become better CEOs. And so, you know, uh, improving, you know, the allocation, the efficient allocation of capital and, and the return and the rate of innovation, I mean, all of these things are, I think, absolutely essential to long-term U.S. success and competitiveness. I know Paul's got a question for you. Before we do that, if you're watching or listening to this episode of The Deal Flow Show, you can get access to our previous episodes and also subscribe and follow us for access to future episodes by going to thedealflowshow.com. That's thedealflowshow.com. David, uh, at Wield & Company, what do you guys do to prepare yourself for a deal? And, and give us a sense of your due diligence process, if you will. You know, we diligence diligence varies as a function of industry and the type of dealers. Very different. We have you know, we use the, the ILPA uh, institutional limited partnerships uh, associations uh, due diligence questionnaire, for instance, for asset managers. In fact, uh, you know, it can be pretty painful, pretty extensive uh, disclosure document. I mean, but the flip side is that uh, 
you know, if you're looking at a life sciences company, which are almost inevitably pre-revenue, you know, you have to get to speak to scientists and uh, you have to have some real, you know, deep vertical knowledge and, uh, and you're evaluating the, oppor the opportunity, um, you know, on the basis of, you know, a lot of criteria. What's the cost going to be to get the thing out in the public? What, you know, because, because the, some, some of these businesses have uh, in, in the life sciences area, have to mount trials that are going to be so expensive that they become prohibitive. So that so the financial risk is sometimes even more um, concerning than the uh, than, than, than the clinical trial risk, right? Because you need the money to be able to do a bona fide clinical trial. And we when we went through this recently with a public company. I said on the board of them, you know, I'd love to do an earlier stage trial. The problem is, which is on an outpatient basis, the problem is that that in order to do that, you need a much bigger patient population, which means you need more money uh, than if you were doing it in, you know, in the hospital when you could control it and you were dealing with only 40 or something patients. And the end point was, did, did you have a higher survival rate um, when you're dealing, and I'm talking about COVID, for instance, if you're dealing with an outpatient population, you want to see how many people stayed out of the hospital. And uh, a lot of people naturally recover. So you have to show that, 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 you know, that the term of the disease is shorter. So you end up, and you end up with much larger uh, patient recruitment challenges and, uh, and, and, and follow-up and implementation. So the cost of, of running the trial is significantly higher also in this particular environment because so many people are comp competing. There's so many ideas coming at COVID, right? You're competing for patient populations and we've seen it move from hospital to hospital that smaller companies, you can find that all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the curve crested because the, the state started, uh, you know, putting more people in, in masks and requiring it. Uh, and uh, so the, the infection rate declines, the number of patients declines, so the ability to recruit all of a sudden you go and you're not able to fill up your, your, your patient populations. And so there's gotta be a little bit of, you know, on the diligence front, you know, you, 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 it's a much more bespoke, hands-on, active kind of process as opposed to somebody simply filling out the questionnaire. And then for other companies, it's everything kind of in between. And obviously uh, alternative energy is a little bit simpler. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of interest now and, in, in uh, elect in, uh, in things related to the electric electric vehicle market, from you know lithium mining uh, to support batteries to you know chargers to we've we've been working with a company that's actually creating an electric plane uh, trainer uh, and uh, and uh, interestingly because just like with a Tesla, there's so many fewer moving parts. Um, that the actual cost to operate these planes should be dramatically lower. So the cost to be able to train pilots should be significantly lower, which should grow the universe of people that want to get licensed as pilots. So, you know, it's a little trans transformative to the industry in a number of ways, not the least of which is that it has a, a, a more climate-friendly footprint. We've gone 35, 40 minutes, and he hasn't mentioned the buzzword, the keyword of this, we've, we've heard it over and over again from our guests. Give us your take on SPACs. Oh boy, well, so first of all, uh, you know, and, I, and I'll give you a different spin on it. SPACs are, are a symptom of a market that's not functioning properly. It's Wall Street ingenuity 
trying to figure out how to get companies public when the traditional IPO process is failing, okay? So that tells you that Congress and uh, whoever is going to be occupying the Oval Office needs to fix the stock market structure so that we can get support back into smaller IPOs and be able to take them and distribute them properly, do a proper underwriting, and get them to set up and support it back and get America back into business. Now, there was a, we worked on a, um, a new form of stock market that was supposed to do this, that was in that bill I told you about that made it through the house 406 to four. It was, it was, it was about, it was called a venture exchange. It was with Congressman Emmer, Republican up in, uh, but it was very, very bipartisan up in Minnesota. And, uh, and it was in that big omnibus package that got stalled when it went over to the Senate and, and uh, the president shut down the government over the wall. Uh, hopefully it'll come back. But SPACs, you know, right now offer people an alternative to get, you know, to get public. And there, there are more and more and more of them. We'll get more companies public. It'll create some velocity of capital to mid-sized companies. So on the margin, it's, it's a better it's 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 better than nothing, right? Um, and uh, but but the trick is there's a lot of dilution associated with it, which puts a limit on on you know it puts a big big pressure on buying a a, a cheap company into the spac to get the conversion to get the de spac to get real investors to buy it, and then you typically have a warrant overhang or a partial warrant overhang, and so you got to see a lot of growth in these things to be able to. You know, drive through that incremental dilution to make the stocks perform in the public marketplace. And so, as I said, it, it's a, it's a, it's not a perfect solution. The flip side, right now, and I, I'm going to connect some dots for you, is that there's probably 60 institutions that generate 90% of the commissions to the typical uh, Wall Street public equity operation. 60 accounts. And the reason, and they, they're the ones that are effectively paying for access to the IPO calendar, right? But they're not the natural buyers. The natural owners of these stocks are lower turnover. The other, you know, there's another 3,500 accounts out there that are, that are, you know, that are doing more fundamental investment, but because they don't have the velocity in their portfolio, they're not generating enough commissions to get access to the IPO calendar. So what is Wall Street doing? Wall Street's chronically underpricing IPOs to those, those top accounts of theirs. They, they generate a pop in the stock price and they are shaking them down for commissions over the transit. That's what's going on. And they may not say that, but basically they're saying, you know, things like we're only allocating new issue equities to our big commission payers. But what are they doing? They, so they wanna see more commissions. If I put a dollar of alpha into your account, I want 50 cents back into my account, right? And so what's, what's happening is the companies that are going public in that process are being underpriced, leaving too much money on the table. Boom, boom, boom. Now you hear about direct listings. What's going on? Well, people in Silicon Valley have figured out that they're getting, they're getting screwed. They're getting way chronically underpriced and not properly distributed. So they want to direct list and avoid Wall Street altogether. And that's that tension. So meanwhile, you got you got SPACs showing up in the market to try and fill the gap. And so all of this here is telling you that stock markets are not functioning properly from the perspective of capital formation. And we need to go out and, and start with a clean piece of paper and structure a market that is going to allow people to provide aftermarket support. Now, I'll give you a 
another concept, which is a little bit academic, so bear with me, okay? Large cap stocks are called symmetrical order book securities. Thousands of buyers and sellers interacting, okay? Best thing you can do is get out of the way and let the order book interact. Very efficient market, they're innately liquid. This is what you see with the S&P 500. But life starts always with smaller companies. All Fortune 500 companies were once startups. And so in order to get to that Fortune 500 stage, you gotta cross the chasm. And the chasm is the small, where the small IPO market was obliterated. Why? Because they're asymmetrical order book securities. Big buyer, no seller. Big seller, no buyer, right? There's not a lot of standing orders, right? So somebody has to get compensated to create an order to find buyers to offset the sellers. And when there's no economic model because everything's trading in penny tick sizes electronically and a short seller can get in if they sniff something and, and short into the deal and, your, and your, 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 your fidelity or something is gonna end up seeing their stock go down and their $10 stock, they get out of it at, at $8. So the real cost is the $2 they lost in so-called slippage and share price, they just say, the heck with this, we don't like this market. It, micro cap markets are not working, we're gonna move our capital up market. And so we've got, a, we've got a one size fits all stock market that's optimized for large cap trading, and we don't, have, we don't have a market structure in the public that works for small capitalization stocks any longer. That's the burning, crying need for the U.S. economy, if we get that fixed, we will start turbocharging the economy and innovation once again. That's what we need. And that's going to look something much more like the old uh, telephone quoted NASDAQ over-the-counter markets, if you will, where people get on the phone, they get long and loud. Uh, you know, a, a Fidelity comes in with a half million shares of stock to sell on a, on a stock that trades 10,000 shares a day. And you uh, and the and the firm uh, says uh, we're, we're going to buy it at ten, mark it up to a quarter net to the client, and we're going to and we'll we'll write we'll, we'll create five hundred one thousand share buy orders to absorb that 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 big bolus of stock that's coming into the market and replace it. We're going to tell that story five hundred times to five hundred investors and manufacture liquidity. We need to get back to that blocking and tackling because. The great myth of, of markets is, is that what you have that works for large stock, large cap stocks is a complete unmitigated disaster for small cap stocks. And it's costing this economy and it's costing, it's costing our, our populist jobs, it's costing us innovation, it's costing us US economic leadership, it's costing us tax base, it's ultimately gonna cost us national security because national security comes from technology leadership and technology innovation needs to be funded by capital markets. David Wild, Wild & Co. All right, now, so as you, uh, we finish up here, our audience is obviously diverse, people from all across the capital markets as well as founders and service providers. What are the kind of people that you would like to hear from and what would be the best way for people to reach out to you? Well, people that are, we're a movement as much as we're a business and, you know, an independent contract. If you think you got something to add, you know, come join us, right? Uh, we want to take this, we're going to be really, we're going to create essential economic infrastructure for the U.S. economy by being in all 50 states and, 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 uh, and, and, and growing to a thousand people and getting ourselves organized so that we can be part of the solution and not part of the problem. You know, if you've got, uh, you know, I mean, we, we, 
big believer in, you know, in great deals and capital formation. You need help that way. Uh, investors, you know, we, we throw off so much deal flow. I and mean, we've got 80 active engagements right now, particularly high net worth individuals. I mean, people that are interested in, in investing, you know, reach out to us. Uh, but again, you know, if, if, if you believe in a movement uh, that's going to be part of the solution and not part of the problem, if you want to make a contribution and you think you can help, uh, you know, we'd love to hear from you. I'm on LinkedIn. It's uh, it's uh, David uh, Weild, W-E-I-L-D. There's not a lot of wields around. It's a pretty rare name. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, love to hear from you. Fantastic. Good to have you on. At Anything least, well, else? There's, there's at least three David Wheels because he's the fourth, right? So, <laughs> so we've got that. There's a fifth at home. He's six foot three. Oh, there, <laughs> there you go. Fantastic. So good to have you on. Um, obviously, if you're watching or listening to this episode, be sure to get in touch with us. If you think you'd make a great guest or you know a great guest, go to thedealflowshow.com and uh, suggest to us a guest or suggest yourself. And if you are listening to this episode, we have a lot more coming in season one. And uh, we already have season two on the horizon, people starting to book for season two. So super excited about the success that the Deal Flow Show has yes. had in our very first season. Yes. On behalf of my partner here, Mr. Paul Nicolini from Harbor City Capital, our team here in the studio, Jesse McMahon behind the camera, Mr. Daniel Pinaranda, our producer. I'm JP Maroney, and we'll see you again in another episode very, very soon. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks, David. For more episodes, visit thedealflowshow.com and subscribe.